I'm guessing that uh, you have um, your own Christmas dreams uh, of when you think about uh, the Christmas season, uh, your ideal celebration or your ideal moments, uh, that you've kind of defined that and scripted that in your heads. Uh, I'll let you into to mine for a moment. Hearing uh, the piano playing like that, just a peaceful uh, Christmas uh, piece of music, uh, seeing the trees, like one of the things I look forward to every Christmas season are those moments when I can just sit in my home, uh, hear some instrumental Christmas music playing, and just kind of take it in. Um, I, I love to get lost in my tree, you know, just stare at it long enough to where it kind of blurs together and you just kind of are taken in. I don't know what your dreams are uh, for Christmas or if you even have any, uh, but, but those are mine. And, and here's another, not so much a dream, but a hope that I have is that today, um, no matter what's going on in your life, uh, no matter uh, what chaos happened on the way here, whether it was uh, pushing children into car seats and uh, getting dresses caught in doors or uh, spilling your coffee all over your, your new shirt, whatever it was, uh, that you'll have a moment to take a deep breath and, and just recognize um, how immensely uh, your God loves you, uh, how much He cares for you, uh, and the purpose and the life and the joy that's found uh, for you uh, in Him. When I think about our, our digital age of communication, um, I think of things like Facebook, uh, I think of Snapchat, I think of Skype, I think of FaceTime, I think of text messages, iMessages, all of those things. And if we're honest, they've, they've really been a blessing to many of us. Uh, on Thanksgiving Day, uh, we're sitting at Audrey's parents' home, and I receive a message from my brother, who's in France with my sister at Disneyland Paris, and saying, Happy Thanksgiving. And I receive it within seconds of them taking the picture and sending it to me. That's just incredible. It enables me to be uh, close to a brother who's literally thousands of miles away. I think of the times that I've taken advantage of FaceTime. Uh, I'll be traveling to another country. We'll be on a mission trip. And my family will be back here, and we'll be able to throw up FaceTime. I find a Wi-Fi signal, and I can see uh, my wife and my children, uh, our two crazy, ridiculous dogs running in the background. Like, like it's almost like you're there, right? And each of us have, has received a well-timed letter, a well-timed note. We've maybe participated in one of those video calls, and we know how, how that can help us. Uh, it can help us feel somewhat close to the people we care about. It can help us be encouraged. It can bring us some sense of comfort and strength. But I think something we could all agree on is that none of those are a substitute for the real physical presence of the people that we love, right? When, 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 when we go to my parents' house on Tuesday, and I walk through the door Tuesday afternoon, and my brother, who's been in France for months, is there. The first thing I'm going to do is hug him. There's something different about having him right there with me. And then I'm going to ask him why he didn't bring me to France and let me go to Disneyland Paris with him. But that's a side conversation. Um, there's something about being with people that makes a difference. I've shared this story with you before, and, and so uh, if you've heard it, uh, I just think it fits so well this morning. When I was in college, um, it was the... Uh, winter of my sophomore year. We had just finished Christmas break, uh, preparing to start second semester sophomore year, and uh, my roommate Caleb, uh, a good friend of ours, John, uh, decided that we had this great idea. Let's go caving. Let's go back to school early. Uh, John lived in East Tennessee, and, and let's, go, let's go spelunking, right? And my parents made me make this whole list of all the items I needed. Top on the list was a helmet, rope, 
flashlight. I got the flashlight, thought I was good, and, and we went caving. So we drove to East Tennessee, and uh, we get up early one morning, and we head out to this place called Worley's Cave. When we get there, the, the alarms should have been going off, because across the front of the cave are these huge iron bars, like probably four inches wide, four inches thick. There's a huge sign that says, danger, do not enter, no trespassing, um, fall risk, all those things. And I should have said, eh, maybe not a good idea. But Caleb, John, and I all went into the cave. We get into the cave, and John's been in there several times, and the water's high because of unseasonable rains. So we end up having to take a detour, which leads us to a place he'd never been. And when we got to where we were at this edge of a cliff, we realized we couldn't go back the way we came. It was too slippery. Uh, so, so John and Caleb, being much better athletes than me, lowered themselves down the cliff. Uh, it was my turn. They told me where to hold on. And as I held on and slowly let myself down, I slipped and I fell. Uh, 15 to 20 feet, I landed on my head. And when I came to, um, my white ball cap was saturated with blood. It was dripping down my face. Um, my, my right wrist just kind of flopped around. Uh, it had been broken. And this is before, and some of you are like, well, then why don't you just call somebody to come help you? Well, this is before cell phones. We're talking 1997 here, which I know some of you were probably born then. But there's no cell phones. Like, rich people had bag phones, but we weren't rich people. We were college students. Um, We're lucky to be able to eat biscuits and gravy, right? And so there's no bag phones. So we rush to John's house where I call my dad. And it makes me emotional just thinking about it. When I heard my dad's voice on the phone, Uh, There was just this peace that kind of washed over me in that moment. It's as though something, uh, all this was wrong, but but I I knew somehow, some some way that this was going to be okay. And dad coached me through the ER visit and what to do and when to call him after I got done at the ER. And, and so I go to the ER, they, they fix me up, they bandage me up, they stitch me up, they, 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 they put a soft cast on my arm and they send us on our way. And so we go, we go back to our school and as we're recuperating to get ready for um, the new semester, uh, I had a fitful night's sleep, my roommate was up with me again and again and again, I had a severe concussion, all those, all those wonderful things. About seven in the morning, there's a knock on my door. And so I struggle to get out of bed through the pain. And I go and I look through the peephole, and my dad is standing on the other side of the door. My dad, who had traveled from Brownstown, Indiana to Knoxville, Tennessee, who had, when he heard the news of my fall, arranged everything at work to come home, pack his bags, and hit the road, had driven through the night, slept at a rest area, all to come and to be present with me. And I have to tell you that when I opened that door and my dad gave me a hug, Holy cow, the floodgates just opened. And that was a strength and that was a comfort like nothing could have happened, like like I never could have had over the phone. Um, I never could have had it any other way. That my dad would come and be present with me. I, I think that's a fitting story to share because whether you realize it or not, the Christmas season gives us an invitation to see the truth That our Father in heaven, our God, left everything to come and to be present with us. When we were roughed up, when we were messed up because of sin, because of brokenness in our lives and the lives of other people, our God came and was present in a human body. Matthew details this for us 
Matthew is one of my favorite um, reporters uh, in that's contained in the Bible. Um, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. We know a little bit about Matthew's journey. We know that Matthew uh, was a Jewish man. We know that Matthew at some point decided that he didn't want to be a good Jewish man. He became a tax collector. There's a lot more money to be had in scheming other people. And so he got his money and um, uh, he was happier for it. But then one day came and Jesus, this famous rabbi, came and said, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And from that day forward, Matthew's life was completely different. Matthew started following Jesus And as Matthew looks back on his life, and he sees who Jesus was, how he experienced him, the truth of who his uh, real identity was, uh, he wants to convince his Jewish peers, neighbors, co-workers about the significance of this man who came and lived and died and rose again. And so Matthew's gospel, his report of the life of Jesus, is filled with all kinds of things to help show people that Jesus was more than just a good teacher, that Jesus was more than just a a great rabbi, more than just a good man, that he was, in fact, God coming to live with man, the Father coming to be present with his broken children. Matthew begins by tracing the genealogy of Jesus. We were there a couple weeks ago. He traces the genealogy again to show that Jesus really was the long-awaited, long-anticipated Messiah, uh, the rescuer of Israel, the son of Abraham, the son of David. But what's really interesting is after he traces the genealogy, he, he takes us to Joseph. And he tells us that Joseph had a dream one night and an angel came to visit him in the dream. And during the dream, the angel said, I know you're thinking about divorcing uh, you know, Mary because you think she's been unfaithful, but here's what you need to know, Joseph, is that the child that's in her is not conceived by a man. The child in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew adds this comment. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is the only writer in all of our New Testament to call Jesus Emmanuel. But there was something about having walked with him, something about having experienced him, something about having looked into his eyes and, and seen him cross the stormy sea in the night, and, and somehow having seen him feed thousands of people, and, and somehow seeing, seeing him raise a dead man to life that had such a profound impact on Matthew that he says, this is not just a good man. This is the Son of God. This is even God in the flesh. And so from the very beginning of his report, he tells us that he was God with us. He was God living in human flesh. And he states the case throughout the entire report, through parables, through miracles, through other stories. And he gets to the end of his report. And what does he end it with? Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And surely, Jesus says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Matthew bookends his report with this idea that this was God with us. This was Emmanuel. Sometimes we get caught up in the, in the names of Jesus, and we're like, what do I call him? Uh, new believers often think that Jesus' first name is Jesus and his last name's Christ, right? Um, at least that's what your grandpa always said when he hit his thumb with a hammer, so he figured that was right. Jesus is his name. It means the Lord saves but Christ or Messiah, which mean the same thing as his title. 
That, 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 that's what he does. He, he, he saves, he rescues, he's the anointed king. But Emmanuel, that's a statement of his identity. That's who he is. He is God with man. And it has such incredible implications for our own comfort and our own courage and our own strength. Another way we speak of God coming and being with man is with another I word. It's, it's the incarnation. It literally means to, to put on flesh. So we say that in Jesus, God came and put on flesh. Another one of Jesus' disciples, uh, John, who, who walked with him, who, who was privy to all kinds of intimate moments with Jesus, special teachings, holy encounters. He saw Jesus' life, and, and what did he say about him? John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The, the Word, uh, there have been whole volumes written on the term the Word. It comes from a Greek term, logos, which speaks about um, just this utterance of God. It only belongs to God. And this kind of spoken utterance of God became flesh and made its dwelling among us. God, in all of his mystery, in all of his power, took on human skin. I love that term that he, he made his dwelling among us. That's the same word in the Old Testament that's used for tabernacle. A tabernacle in, in Israel's history was this place where the Israelites would set it up. It was this temporary dwelling place of God, and the tabernacle was covered in animal skins. It was part of the exact specifications that God had given to Moses on, on Mount Sinai. And so God would come, and he would dwell underneath the skin of the tabernacle. And so here John is saying, guess what? God came back. And he's dwelling in skin again, but it's not just in some place you can go to. He dwelt in the skin of humanity. He put on human flesh. God literally came to earth in the form of a human being. I, I don't know much about this onesie craze. Anyone willing to admit that they have an adult onesie? Anybody? Yes, thank you. Like, I, I almost bought one and thought about preaching in it this morning, but I just can't get there. The only one that I could find that I would halfway interested in buying was the bunny suit from Christmas story, right? But, but, but I use that picture because this idea of a onesie is that if I were to put it on and I step into it and I zip it up, that's what God did in human flesh. He came, the divine, infinite creator, and he stepped into human flesh and zipped it up and lived among us. And that the infinite, all-powerful creator of heaven and earth would come and enter the form of a, of a human that speaks with incredible strength and comfort to us. How so? Well, it speaks with comfort because it, the incarnation expresses the depths of God's love. I want you to think about it this way. We, we measure lots of things in life. We, we, we measure distance. We can measure small distances in, in inches and feet or if we're from the rest of the world, centimeters and meters. Uh, if, if we want to measure long distances, we measure them in, in miles or, again, in other parts of the world, kilometers. If we want to measure temperature, uh, we use degrees, right? We have Celsius. We have Fahrenheit. If we want to measure barometric pressure, we have our millibars. We have things to measure all sorts uh, of different um, distances and shapes and sizes. How do we measure love? How do we measure love? We measure love with sacrifice. A willingness to give with no guarantee of return. And the deeper that gift, the more costly that gift, 
the deeper the love, right? The currency of love, if you want to think of it that way, is sacrifice. And when you apply that standard of measurement, that currency to what God did, you see this incredible sacrificial love of God on display in the incarnation. We have God, uh, the infinite, all-powerful creator of the universe, who is adored and worshipped and honored in the heavenly realms. Uh, If you don't know that, just take a peek through the book of Revelation when the heavens kind of open up and John gets to see what happens in the heavenly realms. And he sees these angelic beings that we can't even begin to imagine, like the heads of lions and the wings of an eagle. and, and, And they worship God day and night, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So he is infinite, perfect. Uh, he is adored. He, he is a, he's in a place of absolute perfection. There's no rebellion. There's no brokenness. There, there are none of the side effects of rebellion and brokenness. And yet God leaves that perfect, that perfect place to come to humanity, to take on human flesh, to no longer be adored but to be scorned and ridiculed. To, to no longer be in a perfect place where, where people gather around to worship him. But now he's in a world uh, that just, just oozes suffering and hurt and brokenness. What does it take for someone to leave all that is perfect and amazing and holy and right and come into a place that's characterized by such brokenness? That's incredible, sacrificial love. Now think about it this way. Uh, here, here is a God who is dependent upon no one. A God who has spoken and light bursts forth at 186,000 miles per second. A God who forms the oceans and the lands. A God who parts waters. A God who's able to to make water burst forth from rocks. A God who's able to change bitter waters sweet. A God who can make manna come from heaven. A dew that falls along the ground that can be made into bread. A God that can bring quail to fall on the land to feed his people. This God who is dependent upon nobody. Nobody enters human flesh, and now he's dependent upon his mother's breast for nourishment. His father's hands to to change him when he's dirty. Someone to pick him up and to console him when he's crying. That speaks of the depths of God's love. That's incredible sacrifice. And why? Why did God leave what was so perfect and incredible and enter into human flesh? There's only one answer, and that answer is you, a collective you, because God knew that if he could draw near to us, then we could draw near to him, and so he came. I, I like how, how, how Paul shares it in Philippians. Philippians 2, there's a, a famous hymn. Paul shares this, he says, of Christ, of Jesus, of Emmanuel. He says that he was in the very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grabbed hold of. Rather, he he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, bo- by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God's sole purpose in putting on human skin 
God's sole purpose in being Emmanuel, God among men, was to come close and to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin that we might once again be with him. And that screams sacrifice. That screams love. Some of you are probably wondering, okay, where, where, but where's, where's the connection to comfort? Like, how is it supposed to bring me comfort now? Well, that God would bridge heaven and earth to come for you declares something uh, over your life. It declares that you are a person of value, that you have worth, that he came for you. And you and I both know we live in a world where our worth is completely under a completely and always under attack. We have people that seem to take great pleasure in telling us how horrible of a person we are. We have people who will look at us and they will remind us of all the ways we fail and never mention the ways that we do uh, when we do things right. You and I open up our, our, our web browsers and, and what do we see? We see people who have tagged us in blog posts and journal entries and and every one of them is prescribing a new way to be a better mother, a new way to be a better father, a new way to be a really good millennial, a new way to be a better husband, a new way to be a better wife. If you want to be a good girlfriend, if you want to be a good boyfriend, and you put these all side by side by side by side, and they all share so many competing things that when you read them, you're like, oh, crud. Like, how am I ever going to measure up to this? And in turn, we wonder if we'll ever measure up to anybody, if we'll ever have worth and value. And when we realize that the creator of the universe said, you matter so much to me that I will bridge heaven and earth and I will come for you and I will put on skin and I will endure the things that you endure to be with you, it's an expression of amazing love and it's an amazing love that can't be taken away. It can't be taken away if you're going to sit alone this Christmas. It can't be taken away if, if, if you've got no family in town. It can't be taken away if you're dealing with devastating loss. The fact that God came and lived among us and he did it for you can't be taken away and that should bring you incredible comfort because your God loves you that much. But even beyond the incarnation being this expression of the depths of God's love, it shows us something else, and it should bring us strength. The incarnation shows us that God shared in our human experience. Just, just think about that for a moment. God shared in your human experience. When, when I wrote this message, I, I capitalized this one word, all caps, LIVED. <laughs> Because when I see that word, it makes me think about what happens in my life. I think about the frustrations I have sitting in standstill traffic on 465. Uh, I think about the pain that I experience. I think about the heartaches that I've endured and encountered. And I realize that God, when he put on human flesh, he experienced all of those as well. That means he experienced the torment and the torrent of temptation. If we can just be honest for a moment, some of our most negative views about ourself, some of the things that cause us the most anxiety and depression are all the ways that we see we don't measure up, and often that points back to some mistakes that we've made. When we were tempted to do something and we didn't have the strength or couldn't find the strength to say no, and so our sin and our shame hangs over us. 
And we know those desperate battles in the darkness or in solitude when temptation breaks and you, you, you have these urges to do this, to eat that, to drink that, to smoke that, to go here, to go there, to be with her, to be with him. And we know that onslaught of temptation and the incredible battle that that is. And, and, and what does the writer of Hebrews encourage us with? Hebrews 4.15. That Jesus was tempted in every way we are but was without sin. Man, how often do we think of that? How often do we understand that when we are facing that overwhelming desire to to go to the bottle for therapy, to go to the pipe for relief, to go to the needle for some distance and escape, how often do we think that when, 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 when we're drawn to that man or that woman and that lustful desire just fills our heart to, to want to, to be in a bed with them? Or that, you are Jesus. God in human flesh faced all those very same temptations. Now, he overcame them. He didn't give in to them. But that's hard for us to think of that God experienced all the same things that frighten us, and, and, and restrict us and, and, and hold us captive. Like, like he faced those temptations alongside of us. And he prevailed. And he prevailed using the exact same source that's available to you and I. And we'll get there in a minute. But beyond temptation, our Jesus experienced the trials and the tears that we experience in this life. I've lived for 40 years, and um, I've yet to find anything that takes a grip on my life or on the lives of people that I know uh, with more despair uh, than death. When, when people that we love die, uh, we, we know that ultimately we're all terminal, our, our lives are going to end, but man, it always comes, and it feels like a thief snuck in and stole something from us, doesn't it? And how often do we realize that we have a God who knows grief? John, the disciple of Jesus who records his life for us as well, uh, tells us about this time when he and the other disciples were with Jesus. They were in a nearby town, and they got word that Jesus' best friend, Lazarus, had died. And Jesus and his disciples, they depart. They come to Bethany where Lazarus lived. And when they get there, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, two dear friends of Jesus, come come running out. And they're saying things like, Jesus, if you'd only been here, he never would have died. And seeing the tears and seeing the grief, what does John share with us? He looks back at Jesus and he tells us that Jesus did something. Do you remember what it is? He wept. And that word weep is an incredible word in the original language. It means to heave and to sob like, like, Jesus ugly cried over this. And that's your God living in human flesh. He understands grief. When, I, I believe that when uh, Paul challenges us to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn, that he's challenging us because he knows that God does the exact same thing. God weeps when we weep and he mourns when we mourn. That's how much he cares for us. Beyond grief, we, we have uh, evidence of pain that Jesus experienced. There, there have been physicians uh, that have studied and studied and studied the crucifixion. 
and the method of crucifixion that the Romans used. And they all have agreed on one thing, is that they have not uncovered a more brutal form of punishment in the history of the world. And yet Jesus went through it. Beaten, flogged. Let's talk about emotional pain. He had people spit on him. He, he, he had one of his closest friends, Judas, turn his back on him. Like he, Judas, a man who was there in the boat when Jesus had walked across the water. Judas, a man in the boat when, when he spoke to the winds and the waves and they obeyed him and the sea grew quiet. Judas, who was there when 5,000 men, not counting women and children, were fed with just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. Judas, who was there when Lazarus rose from the dead. That Judas sold Jesus out. And so when you're betrayed by people that you love, Maybe it's people that live with you. Maybe it's people that work with you. Understand that your God, because he lived in human flesh, experienced that. And that should give you strength because he was able to endure that and eventually overcome that. And he supplies to us the exact same source of that strength. I, um, I used to be a huge fan. I had it on my DVR of Undercover Boss. Anybody else like that show? Was it an indulgence of yours uh, a few years ago when it was so popular? Uh, undercover boss, my favorite thing was to see this person in a place of authority uh, come and kind of live among and work among those who are technically under their authority. And then you would get to the end and these people had said things they probably shouldn't have said or they had done things they shouldn't have done. And, and they get to the end and there's this big reveal, right? And they realize that the guy that was working with them that, you know, had the, the mullet wig on and the flannel shirt, that's actually their boss, there's also this, this thing that happens so often they cry because it's like, wait a second, they were willing to come close. We've got to understand that the incarnation, that God being Emmanuel is the most incredible example of undercover boss ever. That God came close. The one who is in authority came to be with those under his authority and to live with us. And it should give us incredible comfort and strength. And here's why. Because the incarnation endures. The incarnation is still ongoing. Do you understand? This is not just something that you rewind to the 3 AD and, and angels sang to shepherds and, and a virgin gave birth to a child. And it's, it's not as though that, that there's just this baby that somehow we're supposed to find our help in. No, he grew up, he conquered sin, he overcame the grave, and you know what he did? He made a promise. And here's the promise, John chapter 14. If you have not discovered these words my hope is that you will just hang on them. John 14, verse 15, this is from Jesus himself. It's when Jesus is in the upper room. He's hours before he'll be betrayed, hours before he'll be turned over, hours before he'll be falsely accused and beaten, and nearly a day before he's crucified. And here's what he says. He says, if you love me, John 14, 15, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and do what? Be with you forever. The incarnation endures. That's the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus declares that even as he prepares to leave, that he will not depart permanently. His spirit will come and be with them. Guess what? God with us. Emmanuel still comes because he lives within the hearts of the people who trust him, who believe in him, who have faith in him. And you know what that spirit does? That spirit continues to bring comfort. 
There are men and women in this room who have faced agonizing defeat, who have been crushed by incredible loss, and yet in the midst of that loss, even as tears flowed, because God's Spirit lived inside them, they had this comfort and they had this peace that passes all understanding that they cannot begin to articulate. And that's what God's Spirit does because God still lives with us. He dwells in the hearts of everyone who believes in Him, who has faith in Him, who puts their confidence in Him. We're told by Luke and Acts that, that when, 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 when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said to repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This presence of God coming to live inside of you is available to all of us. And it can continue to bring comfort and continue to bring strength. And it's that spirit that's the source of helping us overcome our addictions and our struggles and our temptations. It's that spirit that's the source to helping us endure those trials and, and other chaotic things that happen in this life. He comes to live within us. Now I know if, if you are new to exploring this idea of following Jesus, one of the most crazy things to you is to hear people talk about the Spirit. It just seems weird, right? That, that there's a Spirit that lives in God that would come and live in people. I think part of what makes it so weird is that it's not a tangible thing that we can touch and that we can feel. But when you open up your life to God, something happens and you do begin to feel Him inside. There are times you'll have proddings where there's this, this urge inside, like, this won't leave me alone. I need to go talk to this person. I need to go over here. Or this thing that I'm doing, I don't think that's what God wants me to do. That's not right. I think God's word speaks against that. And so God's spirit leads. There are feelings. There are sensations. And if we give it time, here's something else we realize. As God comes to live inside of us, as we surrender to his authority, inevitably he starts to help us look a lot more like Jesus. Uh, there's this beautiful passage in Galatians where uh, we're told that the fruit of the spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I don't know about you, but when I'm around people who are loving, people who are joyful, people who are patient, people who are kind, people who are good, people who are faithful, people who keep their promises, people who are self-controlled, those are people I want to be around. Those are the people that have the most impact in my life. And, and, and we see that God says through his spirit, those things come to life in us. And so while we may not see the spirit itself as it comes to live within us, we can see the spirit as it's lived out in the lives of the people that trust God and follow him. And then God uses us to be agents of his comfort and his strength. Here's the beauty of the incarnation. Because it endures, not only do we have the one undercover boss in Jesus, but we all have the privilege to be an undercover boss. That God's Spirit lives in us, and so the places that we go, our places of work, our places of school, our places of recreation, our places where we can show up and we can bring comfort and we can bring strength to other people. And when the church, when the people that follow Jesus, the body of Christ is what they call us, when we go out and we model this type of love, this type of joy, this type of peace among our neighbors, guess what? They want it for themselves because they've tasted and they've seen and they've experienced something, they've experienced God in the flesh. God with us, Emmanuel. The, the implications of, of God being Emmanuel, the implications of the incarnation that God would step into human flesh and zip it up are profound. They ought to fill you with strength. And they ought to fill you with comfort. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for, Lord, all that you have done in Jesus. And I thank you that there's this rhythm built into our lives that every year, 
as we celebrate your coming. Um, that ultimately, God, we look forward to the completion of your work that you came to do. And God, I just ask that there would be men and women in this room who would understand you like never before today. And they would come to, to see just the profound meaning of you coming and living in human flesh. And God, it would change the way we celebrate and it would change the way we live. And in your name we pray, amen.